Hi, I'm Mike Kozer, and welcome to the Lost Ballparks Podcast. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone, with Bob Prince and Nellie King. This is Gene Osborne speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a 28 doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. And it's baseball here at Crosley Field. Just the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for it throughout the evening. Larry Boa was a five-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glove winner, and the starting shortstop on the 1980 World Champion Philadelphia Phillies. He was inducted into the Philadelphia Phillies Wall of Fame in 1991, and he is our guest on this week's episode of the Lost Ballparks Podcast. Drill to the left field corner. Boa's going to have extra bases. Willie Wilson to the wall. Wilson into third base with a throw, so Boa continues to have an excellent World Series with a double off the screen. Larry Boa, how are you? I'm doing good, thank you. Where and when did you take in your first Major League Baseball game? My first Major League game, I went to Candlestick Park with my dad. What do you remember about that game? What year was that? I want to say early 60s. The only thing I remember about that, it was freezing. It was a night game, and uh, that stands out in my mind. It could be the middle of July, and a night game would be as cold as uh, an April game in Cleveland off the lake. No question. And you know what's unbelievable about that is you go out and hit around. Well, we usually get the field early the first day, so you go out at 2 o'clock. There's not one bit of wind blowing. The sun's out. It's beautiful. You go in, you change, then you come out at your regular batting practice at around quarter to 6, and the wind's howling. It's cold. The fog's coming in. So it almost reminds me a little bit of Wrigley when I talk about the weather, because I've hit at Wrigley where it's a beautiful day. You go in, the other team hits, you come out. The wind's blowing straight in. The temperature dropped 40 degrees. So... I mean, you're talking about two parks there that in a minute, the weather can change. And uh, those two stand out in my mind more than anything. And it's one of those situations where you want to hit the ball on the sweet part of the bat, because if you hit it off the end or yeah. get, get jammed inside, it's going to sting for the rest of the game. Oh, there's no question. And and in Candlestick, not only was it cold, but the wind blew right in the hitter's eyes and your eyes would water. Uh, it wasn't as cold at Wrigley. It didn't seem as bad because it was more wide open at, uh, at Candlestick coming off the water there and everything. And when I first got called up, that right field was wide open. All you saw was the, the ocean. And obviously, it's towards the end there at Candlestick, it was enclosed, which made it a lot more bearable. But uh, both parts, when the temperature gets below 30, I'd even say 35. Yeah, you got to try to hit the barrel, be feeling bees for a long time. And I would bet, too, trying to catch a ball at shortstop was an adventure. Yeah, both both those parks, offensively and defensively, were very difficult to play. Of course, when I played at uh, Wrigley, they had, they still lights weren't up, so they were day games, so you had to deal with the sun and the wind, which made it very difficult. And then a candlestick, the wind and the cold, so... Uh, without a doubt, those two places, because I didn't play as a player in the American League at all. I coached there, but I never played there. So I would say those two National League teams, probably the most difficult, whether you're offense or defense. It, it was, I mean, you had to really concentrate. You know, and there were other games where in the same venue, it happened to be a nice night or a nice day. But when the weather turned, it was two difficult places to play. Yeah, listen, we talked to Sam McDowell recently. Sudden Sam McDowell, and he told me that when he pitched at Candlestick Park, he swore to me that he wore long underwear. Every day, I never won a day in Candlestick Park without my long john hunting 
uh, underwear underneath my baseball uniform because you were freezing out there. Oh, I believe that. There's no <laughs> question. I, I believe that. Because like you said, th- their summer is really November, December, January, February. Right. And their winter is it's completely different. Now, that, that does not shock me at all. I guarantee you, I wore long johns. Is it true, by the way, Larry, that you didn't make your high school baseball team? Got cut three years in a row. Said I was too small. Then you get picked up by the local junior college. I played a summer league that year. After my senior year, they had a summer league in Sacramento. And the junior college coach would come out and scout. And he saw me play. And he, you know, he said his name was Dell Bandy, B-A-N-D-Y. He said, uh, in fact, he's still living. He says, uh, I'd like you to come out for my junior college team. I went, I sort of laughed. I said, I couldn't even play high school. I'm not going to come out. He says, I'll give you every opportunity to make that team. And um, I went out and I made an all-conference two years in a row. And then the Phillies signed me after my second year there. What happened between the time you were in high school getting cut and then junior college? I kept working. My dad played professional baseball. He got as high as AAA, managed in the minor league. So he'd take me out every weekend. On the, the weekends, usually he was free because he, he worked two jobs during the week. But he was always there for me. We'd go out and take batting practice, take ground balls, talk about how to play the game. So my dad was probably a huge influence on me. Uh, he's the guy that told me, don't let one person tell you you're too small, especially in baseball. You don't have to be six foot three and 220 pounds. So, you know, with his encouragement and his availability to take me out and work with me, that has a lot to do with me getting to the big leagues. I shouldn't even say the big leagues. Signed like a contract with a professional team. You signed for, I think, what was it, $2,000? 2000 yep. When you get that contract, I mean, that's quite a journey in three years to go from not making your high school team to getting signed by the Phillies. Yeah, it is. And then I played A, double A, and triple A in three consecutive years. And when I signed, Eddie Bachman was a scout, and he signed a lot of guys. And his basic comment was, if you can't make it to the big leagues, which no one predicted I would make it. I was small. He said, you could be a good organization guy. You can coach in the minor leagues or be a manager in the minor leagues. You know, I was all in on that. You know, as, as things unfolded, you know, I'm a firm believer. You got to be at the right place at the right time. And uh, the first year in the big leagues in 70, if the Phillies weren't in a rebuilding mode, I might not have ever played in the big leagues. They stuck with me because they were going with young guys. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, I had a manager that managed me in double A and triple A. So he knew what I could do. And uh, he stayed with me. And so what year did you graduate from high school? I want to say 65. By 1970, April 9th, 1970, the Phillies are playing Ernie Banks and the Chicago Cubs at Connie Mack Stadium. Hi, everybody. It's Philadelphia Phillies baseball time. You collect the first two hits of your big league career. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember the first game, I didn't get any. Fergie Jenkins pitched, and I went over for 4. The next day, I, I played, and I got a couple of hits then. All I remember is the opening day, standing on the foul lines, and, and as you were just alluding to, Thinking about all the disappointments, everybody saying you can't do this, and the fact that I was standing on the lines during the anthem playing at Connie Mack Stadium. You get goosebumps up and down your spine. And, you know, my mentality then was, man, if I could stay here for a week or two weeks, that'd be great. And, you know, then once I was there a while, I said, if I can just stay here a half a year, and, you know, everything sort of fell into place. But again, being in the right place at the right time, you know, taking advantage of that. I started off very slow in April. I don't even know if I was hitting 200. And the manager called me and he says, listen, I was with you in double A and triple A. I know what you can do. I don't care if you ever get a hit. Now, this is a rookie manager talking to me, a rookie player. He says, I don't care if you get a good hit the rest of the year. You're my shortstop. Wow. 
you know, and my reply to that was, man, if this guy's a rookie manager and he has that much confidence in me, I, I got to respond here. And it was Billy DeMars who was a hitting coach. I mean, we hit every day. My hands bled. I hit so much. And, uh, you know, because the rap on me was he can field, he can run, he can throw, but he's never, never going to hit in the big leagues. But you worked your tail off. I worked unbelievable, not only during the season, but during the off season. And, you know, to get 2,000 hits or something, I look back on it and go, wow. You know, there's not a lot of guys that get 2,000 hits. No. The fact that I, through people that work with me, my dad, Billy DeMars, Frank Casey, I give those guys all the credit. That, you know, they, they were willing to work during the wintertime with me. So it proves that hard work does pay off. I guarantee every kid that puts on a silly uniform has more natural ability than I had. But do they have the, the stick-to-itiveness? Do they have the mental toughness? Do they have the ability to say, I don't care how many people say you can't, I'm going to do it? I don't know if they do. I tell my kids who are in high school, you have to be willing to do what others won't to have what others don't. There's no question. That's a great saying. 50 to 75 ground balls every day. I I didn't have what you call the lights out natural ability. I knew that I had to do all the little things, play good defense, steal bases, put a ball and play on a hit and run, lay down a bunt. My dad ingrained that in me that you're not going to be a big dude out there so you're going to have to do all the little things not make any mental mistakes so i sort of programmed my my career around that i knew that you know now today it's home runs walks or strikeouts and i probably would have never played today so it's just how the game sort of evolved now the phillies had played at chive park later named connie mack stadium since 1938 and with that we're ready to go for play-by-play action we'll go to harry Kellett. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. When you got called up, they were in their last year at that old ballpark. What are some of the unique features that you remember about Connie Mack? Just the history of it, all the people that played there. It was a great stadium. It was just in a bad part of town in Philly. And uh, matter of fact, my first year, you know, I was going to the park and the guy that was working the gate, the security gate, he asked me what I was doing there. And I said, I'm a player. And he went, yeah, sure. So I had to show him my ID because <laughs> I... He says, you're not a player. I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> so, but I mean, it just had these all these nooks and crannies. It was big right center field. There was a big scoreboard there. There was a roof in left field. Uh, I used to watch Dick Allen take BP and hit balls way over that thing. I asked Dick Allen one time what he remembered about Connie Mack Stadium, and he just said the Coke sign, because the Coke sign yeah. was on the left field roof, and he routinely right. would hit home run balls over the Coke sign. Yeah, it, he would hit balls where if you didn't see it, you'd go, no way. I mean, he was that strong. He swung a 35-inch, 40-ounce bat. You know, stuff like that stands out in your mind. And facing guys like Fergie Jenkins. But but I think the biggest thing was that I was able to, which, you know, again, being in the right place. I was able to play the last game at Connie Mack. I played the first game at the vet. I got the first hit at the vet. Line drive. That's a hit off the bat of Larry Boas. Dog cuts it off. Boas out at first base with a line single. Now the first hit. Veterans Stadium. And it goes justifiably to Larry Boas. I managed the last game at the vet. I managed the first game at the new uh, spring training site here in Clearwater, Florida. And I managed the last game at the old spring training site in Clearwater, Florida. So. That was unbelievable. In fact, Denny Doyle, who was the second baseman for me, and in spring training, I kept telling him, I said, you know, I'm leading off. Uh, I'm going to get the first hit there. He goes, no, you're not. I'm going to get it. And I said, well, we'll see. And <laughs> so I got the first hit there and the first stolen base there. One out, one out on the first. Full of breaking. Here's the throw by Bateman, and he is safe at second base with a stolen base. 
saw Bill Stoneman and uh, the Expos. So, you know, those things you remember. The thing I remember about the vet is I thought it was a, a palatial thing. It, it turns out that, it, you know, at that time, they were all cookie-cutter stadiums. They were all the same. They were big stadiums. They weren't small where balls jump out. You have to hit them. And I keep telling Schmitty and uh, Greg Lazinski, if you'd have played at Citizens Bank Park, there's no telling how many home runs you would have hit there. But uh, I liked the vet. It was right down in South Philly. Uh, the energy at that park was great every night, especially uh, when we start winning in, in the mid-'70s and then the World Series in '80. You know, those things, those memories are actually in your mind forever. And uh, to be able to say that uh, you were part of that, it's pretty amazing. You made your first All-Star team in 1974 as a starter, by the way. The game was at uh, Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. As you look around this infield tonight of the National League, you notice it's a very stumpy All-Star infield. Say at third, Bow at short, Morgan at second, Garvey at first are all short players. What stands out to you about playing in that first All-Star game? Well, not only was it a great honor, but when you walk in there, you're sort of intimidated because those are all the names of guys that when you were in high school and junior college that you used to watch and you go, all of a sudden you, you had to pinch yourself and say, this is unbelievable. I'm actually playing, starting with all these Hall of Fame, future Hall of Fame players. Uh, again, those are memories that, uh, they're lifetime memories. And, it, it, you know, if, if you're writing a book and you say, this guy's going to play in this all-star game in 74, and these guys are going to be playing, and this guy who didn't play high school uh, and got $2,000 to sign a I didn't get drafted either. That was the first year of their draft and in 66. I didn't get drafted, so there was a whole lot of guys that got drafted. So, I mean, to say all that stuff and then play on the same team as those guys and not only play but start, it, it's one of those where you say, no way that happened in your career, all the stuff that we're talking about. And I'm very blessed. I, I mean, hey, I thank the Phillies to this day. I'm still working with them, and uh, they gave me the opportunity to play, and uh, I took advantage of it with a, a little luck along the way. I really want to talk to you about 1980. You're the starting shortstop on a Phillies team that just absolutely found a way day in and day out and did not ever quit. Absolute favorites they were not. In fact, most of America's baseball writers picked the team to finish fourth. Steve Carlton, Tug McGraw, Bob Boone, Pete Rose, Schmidt, uh, Luzinski, Bake McBride, Gary Maddox. Manny Trio. I mean, it was a team that it could beat you one to nothing. It could beat you nine to eight. Uh, it could run the bases with anybody. It had great defense. The defense was unbelievable. There was new spirit in the ranks. And Larry Boa's ever-present determination was evidence of one very important thing. This was not a dying baseball team. And, you know, we come so close from 75 on. We play, kept playing the Big Red Machine and the Dodgers, two teams that are really good during that period of time. And whether it was a pitch, a hit, an umpire, whatever it was, we just kept coming up short. And then finally in 80, uh, after going through an unbelievable last week of the season, we had to go up to Montreal and win two out of three up there, which was very difficult to do. And then we played Houston. Every game was extra innings, the exception of the first one. We beat Nolan Ryan. He didn't get the loss, but he had a lead going in that seventh inning. And his numbers with a lead in the seventh inning were off the charts. He would say, this game's over. Game five at the Astrodome, eighth inning, the Phillies are trailing five to two, and you're facing Nolan Ryan. Oh, a line drive, base hit, left center field. Larry leads off the Phillies eighth with a single. Phillies sixth hit off Ryan. 
I remember in the dugout, Pete Rose was very optimistic all the time. Since if you get on, we're going to win this game. And I, you know, I'm I'm going along with it. Pete been around. I said I'm getting on. And you know, people wonder why Nolan Ryan was left in that game so long. First of all, he was a horse. But if you analyze that inning, I swung at the first pitch and got a hit over short. Bob Boone hit a comebacker to the mound that went off Ryan's glove. There would have been a double play ball. So that's two pitches, two men on. Greg Gross comes up, lays down a perfect bunt base hit down the third base line. So in three pitches, we had the bases loaded and nobody out. And we ended up scoring uh, three runs that inning, tied it up, and then eventually went on to win. What did you think of the Astrodome? Oh, you couldn't hear. That's the loudest I've ever been in any kind of venue ever because it was enclosed. It was standing room only. It was a great series. The the loud noise, you know. I watch these games in football. Kansas City. They talk about the loud uh, the loudness of the crowd, and it is loud. But that day, I, I don't know if anything could be louder than that. You couldn't even hear yourself. Was it one of those situations where you, when you got back to the hotel, or like your ears were still ringing like a concert? Every game, yeah. I mean, it was one of those, and and the games were close. Uh, the intensity level was off the charts, and there were so many plays that happened. That Pete Rose tried to score from further. He did score. He's out by 10 feet. He knocks Bochi over. The ball gets by him. That, that was a big run for us. Nick Ruthven, who was one of our big time starting pitches, he had to come in and, and pitch in the, I don't know if that game went 11 or whatever it went. He pitched and he got the win. And so we had to open up the World Series with uh, Bob Walk, who was a rookie. Of course, you want to work, open it up with Carlton. It didn't happen. But, uh, you bat 316 in those five games, and, and what is, I think many consider, one of the great series of all time, as you said, four of the games go into extra innings. And then you go to face uh, Kansas City, the Royals, in the uh, World Series. For the first time in 60 years, two teams who have never won a World Series square off in baseball's October showcase. And going into the 1980, right. of baseball's 16 original teams, the Phillies were the last to have not won a world championship. Right. And, and to be able to say you were the first ever team in Philly history to win a World Series, that's with you forever. It, they can win it two times, they can win it five times, but the team that wins it the first time, that's like... Uh, that's special. Uh, yeah, very special. And uh, I had a good series in, against Kansas City. I think I hit 370. Hey, listen, don't shortchange yourself. 375. And, yeah. and you know what? Game one... You did it again. After trailing 4-0, you start a five-run rally with a base knock. Boa, up the middle. That's going to go through for a base set. That's the first hit of the game. The Phillies go on to win 7-6. Right. But but the, the key to that thing is that opening game, we were down 3 to nothing, like in the second or third inning. And I could steal bases on that team. I'm usually on my own unless Dallas put a hold sign on. And he put a hold sign on. And I knew... I could steal this base off Dennis Leonard. And so I said, I acted like I didn't see it. There he goes. There's the strike, the throw, safe. And I thought I had it easy. It was bang, bang, and I, I was safe. And then so Booney ended up driving me in. And then Dallas said, did you see the hole? And I said, no, I must have missed it. He said, well, if that guy calls you out, you might as well keep running. And I just shook my head. I said, yeah. I guess I would have kept running, but, uh, you know, little things like that. I thought, I didn't think we were dead because you're playing in a World Series, but I thought our energy level wasn't good because it was almost like, hey, man, you guys got die in Houston. You can take a deep breath. And uh, as it turned out, we needed that game because we won the first two. They won the next two in Kansas City. Then we won the third game in Kansas City. Then 
Carlton won the last game at the vet. So yes, Carlton, Steve Carlton pitched great, wins two games in the series. Right. Mike Schmidt wins yep. MVP, although you could make a case for MVP too with hitting 375. Well, I was told that I, I had the MVP till Schmidt got a big double, I think in that last game at the vet. And uh, Schmidt is a great player, no question. That would have been another feather in my cap, but the fact I didn't really care about that stuff. I just wanted to get a ring. Well, by the way, forget the batting 375, but you also turned a World Series record seven six. double plays. Right, in, in, in a six-game series, which, you know, that's a lot to do with uh, who my second baseman was, who was Manny Trio, and our pitching staff threw a lot of ground balls. So, again, you know, a, a team effort. You know, like I said, for a guy that wasn't supposed to play in the big leagues and, and end up playing 16 years and make all-star teams, uh, you know, win gold gloves, uh, hit 300, the only thing that mattered to me, and it's still, everyone could take everything away except for the World Series. At 11.29 p.m., October 21st, 1980, the ghosts of Philly's past are finally laid to rest. The team that couldn't win the big one has taken the ultimate, and the fans who never had a champion have a World Series winner. That's what I played for. I mean, I used to watch these guys celebrate, and I said, man... That'd be great if I could do that one time. Oh, man, I can't tell you how good I feel right now, Brian. Everybody said we couldn't win. They said, no, the Phillies aren't good enough. They don't have heart. They don't have character. We have all of the above, believe me. I personally thought we should have won a couple of those, but, you know, I'm not going to get greedy and say, uh, well, we should have beat uh, the Dodgers the one game or the Reds, but it didn't happen. But I can't say that uh, I actually did everything I wanted to do on a baseball. You know, I, I see a lot of guys that I played with now and they say i wish i'd have done this or that i can honestly tell you i got the most out of my ability i had one goal in mind that was to win the world series and of course you have to have your complement of players and i i look at it as i had three really hall of famers i think pete's a hall of famer mike and carlton so and, and you can count booney up there you finished with one of the highest fielding percentages of all time at shortstop yeah yeah, I did. I did. And I would think that as a for a pitcher like uh, Steve Carlton, how great would it be to have Mike Schmidt and you on that side, on the left side of the infield? Oh, well, we had a good left side. And, and you go to the other side. I mean, Pete, you don't think Pete didn't have, he didn't have great range, but he could catch everything. And Manny Trio had great range. So our infield, and with Booney behind the plate, we had a great infield. And we didn't give away too many games by making errors. And, but we saved a lot of games by playing good defense. By the way, I was watching video last night of the clubhouse celebration after the game in 1980, after the final right. game. And how special right. was it to have your dad in the clubhouse with you celebrating? Here's the man right here, five years old. I was throwing a ball against the garage and wrecking his paint job. And he used to give me <laughs> give me lickings for hitting the garage with a ball. Come on over here. Let's, let's meet your dad. Hi. Hi. How are well, you? you've got to be happy. Well, yeah, this is the happiest day of my life. Besides the World Series being the ultimate, having my dad there, uh, you know, he used to live and die with me playing every night. He would he would make out these box scores in Sacramento, California, and I would wherever I played, starting in the minor leagues, I would send in the papers, and he would keep. In fact, to this day, I still have all my scrapbooks and everything. But uh, he was probably happier than I was. The fact that he got to watch this thing come true, and uh, and he knew that I told him a million times it wasn't for him that this would not have happened, and. Uh, so I'm very happy that he was able to watch that. He's in the clubhouse with you. And as you mentioned earlier, all those days where he probably was tired coming home from work or, you know, wanted to take maybe a day off, but didn't. He goes to the field and he's hitting you ground balls and he's throwing batting yeah. practice to you. And 
he taught me the fundamentals of the game of baseball. I mean, he knew I wasn't a home run hitter. He knew I had to do all the other things. And he kept stressing that every time we went out, we'd hit, he'd take grounders. Uh, he'd give situations to me. Uh, man on first, you need a double play. Where are you going to play? No, you're, you're too far over in the hole. You got to cheat. I mean, just little things. We've bunt. He says, you know, you got, you're going to be a kind of guy that you get a couple guys on, you're going to have to move them over for your, the middle of your lineup. And so we worked on all that stuff. So you probably, a lot of times at shortstop, you probably heard his voice in your ear. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. A lot of that, that brought back a lot of uh, memories uh, during that, especially that game six. You know, there was a lull in the action. I think in the eighth or ninth inning where they had to bring the policeman on the field with the horses. And when you're sitting there thinking you're, all these things are going through your mind, you know, the workouts you had with your dad, the pep talks he gave you, not making your high school team, uh, that thing all, while you're watching this thing unfold, it's all going through your mind. You're going, man, if we can get two or three more outs here, it's going to come to fruition. And your dream, you know, a lot of people dream about stuff. It never comes true, but to have dream, to dream about winning a World Series and have it come true is something that uh, I wish a lot more people could could go through that because it's it's unbelievable feeling. Well, and the moral of the story, in my opinion, too, is just the value of hard work, of putting your nose to the grindstone. And as we said earlier, being able to do what others won't to have what others don't. Yeah, you know what? There used to be a couple articles written about me when I first came up that the only place Larry would be able to get a hit would be Williamsport, Pennsylvania which is where they have the Little League World Series. I mean, I used to have articles written like that. And so when things got bad, it, it wouldn't take me a second to pull out these articles. And it would, would have happened. It would, it would motivate me even more. It was, you know, I would say, okay, okay, maybe you're right, but I'm going to prove that through hard work, I'm going to overcome all these things that you guys said I can't do. And uh, to my dad and my mom and even my sister, they, they – in the summer times, man, they used to come out to Spartanburg. They used to come to Double A Reading. They used to go to Eugene, Oregon. Uh, they would put all their vacations on hold and come and watch me play. So there was a lot of sacrifices given up by my family that I look back on. And you know, they could have very easily said, "Oh, you go play, and we're going to go on a vacation." But they were there rooting every single game that they came to, and uh, they were just as happy as as I was. Believe me. What a great story, Larry Boa. Really appreciate the time today, revisiting a little bit of history and uh, talking about old ballparks and an incredible career. Well, thank you very much. And uh, if there were two ballparks, and I didn't play in the one, but Boston and Wrigley are two ballparks because of the history I coached there with Joe Torre and uh, and Lou Pinella. So, uh, you know, being able to go there at Fenway and, of course, Wrigley, and you look at people that played there, I mean, again, that's another one. And there were so many nooks and crannies in that those two ballparks that made it very special. But uh, those are two parks that everybody, if you're a big-time fan, you should go to those two parks because uh, those are great places to watch baseball games. Yes, it's true that Mike Schmidt won the 1980 World Series MVP. But without Larry Boa, that team may not even make the playoffs. And for a guy who never even made his high school team to finish his major league career with 2,191 hits become a five-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glover, pick up a World Series ring, a World Series, by the way, in which he hit 375. It's a pretty amazing journey. And, of course, he went on to win Manager of the Year in 2001 and is a part of the Philadelphia Phillies Wall of Fame. Hey, I want to take a quick second and thank my Lost Ballparks Patreons who support this podcast. 
Patreons have access to each episode a week early, limited edition merchandise. Patreons unlock extra innings that sorted the interview after the interview. And then Patreons also get access to the Clubhouse Bulletin Board. This is kind of like our command central for the podcast. A visual of what players and broadcasters are on my wish list, who I might be that week exchanging phone calls and emails with. You'll know exactly who I'm chasing, uh, the behind the scenes of the podcast. And so if you'd like to elevate your Lost Ballparks podcast experience, just go to lostballparks.com and check out our Patreon page. Special thanks to our producers, Briggs Buckingham, Maddie Zavlakis, Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, and Michael Orman. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the Lost Ballparks podcast. I'll see you next week.